thing that's there's one thing that is certain and that is God is faithful. So I think that there will be a good springboard springboard for what what we are about to, to think and pray uh, this morning. I just wanted to start by reading a passage of scripture and um, I know that we've dealt with this probably two years ago, but um, don't worry, we're not going to deal in the same manner. So we're going to be dealing with Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, and then we're going to to carry on um, a little bit later on with the extension or with the later part of the chapter. But we're trying to, to, to deal today with what does the gospel proclamation involve and we're going to see Paul's attitude when he finds himself that he has returned or he has come back from from his pharisaic um, rules and he's met with the gospel with he has met with Jesus Christ and now he's trying to deal with his frustration with his own people that why are they not endorsing? Why are they not accepting God's gospel? Good news for them to be saved. So then he says in the beginning of chapter 10, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. And their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And then we're going to be dealing with those four rhetorical questions that he asks um, later on in the chapter, uh, starting from uh, verse 14 onwards. Um, the 29th of May, 1453, was, the, so it will be tomorrow, I've even calculated how many years, 564 years ago, uh, was the time where the city of Const- Constantinople um, was taken over by the Ottoman Empire. And if you look at the history, I've been reading on some articles this week, that the transformation of this city, or the um, actually the giving up of Christianity and endorsing um, Islam was done in a, in a matter of weeks. That's how quick it happens. But in the same time, you read articles and stories that while these things were going on, the Christian scholars of those days are happened to be recorded that they were dealing with two big theological questions. The first deep theological question was, what color were the Virgin Mary's eyes. And the second deep theological question was, if a fly falls 
into a holy water. Is the water defiled or the fly sanctified? <laughs> and I just wanted to, to draw parallels with where we are at this state of where the world is, where the church is, and more than we're doing with the gospel that we've been given to administer. And I say this with goosebumps because I realize that as a church, and perhaps it means us as Cairns, but I just don't want to go and say the church in general because I think I want to bring it home. I want to bring it to myself. I think I find myself, when it comes to the whole idea of proclaiming, when it comes to this idea of me sharing the good news of what Jesus has done, when it comes to this um, idea or when it comes to the task that I've been given to be that little widget that Aaron reminded us, I happen to find myself, and perhaps you do the same, that I start creating a gospel that is acceptable to people rather than presenting a gospel that God has already accepted and hence made it available for you and me. So in the light of that, I think the other thing that I find myself is something that um, I found to be more and more doing in this country than I did in my home country, is that we are part of a culture that we need to fix things up quickly. And basically, because of consumerism, instead of trying to fix up, we just do it very quickly. And there is no persistence there and there is no hanging in there when we demonstrate, when we proclaim when we reach out to people so we are part of the culture that we give up so quickly my dad's frustration when he was in his recent years of his life he became a car mechanic from a ship mechanic is he used to love the old cars because in the old cars he felt fulfilled because he was able to fix things. When the new cars came into the picture, with all this electronics and all those things, he found himself very frustrated because he was not anymore a car mechanic. He was a part replacer. This part has gone wrong, you just change that. Whereas he's frustrated. And I, I just wanted to, to, to bring that in because this is the culture that we have found to be part of. And sometimes, or a lot of times, we, I, find myself walking on the same footsteps of my culture. And sometimes I give up so quickly in reaching and proclaiming the gospel to others. Not only because of the culture, but also, I think, because I 
have kind of underestimated the power of God unto salvation. And I think the struggle is that somehow the church has, has taken on itself this ownership and authorship of salvation, which actually is not ours, it's God's. And we just happen to be the stewards, the, 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 the administrators. We happen to be given this task to reach out. So, with those three things in mind, I just wanted to bring our attention to what Paul feels and how he is dealing with, with this. Um, when he's surrounded by similar attitudes and similar things that um, we are facing. So he says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. I never thought until this morning that sometimes my heart desire and my prayer are not the same. I don't know if you find that, that sometimes I find that actually my pra- I know what I need to pray for, but my heart's desire is to pray for something else. And I'm in this torn and this conflict. Whereas when Paul sees the people, his own people, that have got this misplaced zeal for God, he's not torn. He says, my heart's desire, my longing and my prayer for these people is that they get saved. What do they get saved from? Of course, from the tentacles of sin. What do they get saved from? From that attitude of being and turning your back to God. And where do you get saved to? That you come to encounter this gospel, like Paul has really. And saying, I'm no longer God's enemy. Remember the story when he encounters Jesus in Acts chapter 9? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To the place of saying, God, you are my Lord and my Savior. And therefore, my prayer to my God is that the Israelites is that they may be saved. So, there is this prayer and there is this longing that is based on a very grounded compassion. And I think Paul has not inherited this compassion because of his long life's service in part of the elite of Israel. He has gained this heart of confession from being a disciple of Jesus. You look at the whole New Testament and you look at different attitudes, um, sorry, different passages when you see the same attitude that Jesus has. When Jesus saw the crowds, have a look at, I think it's Matthew 9:36. He had compassion about them. When Jesus reached out 
to individuals. He did it because he had compassion about them. So Paul is, is, is replicating what he has seen in his master. And he has to come from that place of compassion. Because the loss, that thing that you reminded us of, Jonathan, that you only live once is not true. It's a reality for God. It's a reality for Paul. And I think it's a reality of our world. And that's why the gospel becomes good news. That's why it becomes good news. Because basically you are turning to God and you are being saved not only for today, not only for the life here on earth, but for the whole eternity. And that has nothing to do with you. Because again, as Richard reminded us, God is all-sufficient. And He, we've said it many times, we sing it, He is the author of salvation. He is the source of compassion. How do, do we proclaim this good news. What does this proclamation of the gospel involve? It involves us getting at the feet of God and saying, God, if I have not got that compassion in my heart, I cannot infuse it. You can't infuse it on me. God, give me compassion and passion for the lost. So that my heart's desire and my prayer become one. That Westbury Park, Henleys, Bristol, UK, Europe get saved. That's a big prayer. It's a big prayer. But remember, you're praying this prayer to a big God who is the author of salvation, who gives the gift of salvation like he has done to you and to me and that's when it becomes all fantastic that's when it becomes all unimaginable how this this god almighty deals with his creation and how he still is compassionate and patient and gives opportunity to people to turn to him. But have a look at Paul's attitude, the second attitude that he's got here, or the second approach, that not only he's got this compassion, but in his proclamation of the gospel, he is quite aware that his remarks about them are not superior. They're not, they're, they're not just telling that these guys are wrong. They're not just putting blame and guilt and pointing fingers. But he's coming to that place of saying that actually, look, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. So he is quite aware that the situation where they are, you know, 
it's not that he's better off because he knows that he has been there. He is better off because he has met with Christ. And it's not a matter of superiority. It's a matter of encounter. It's a matter of meeting with Jesus. And he really is quite aware of that. And that's, and that's where his compassion comes from. Because he thinks that, oh, he's coming across here, that these guys are missing out. They're missing out because they've got this misplaced zeal. They've got this pursuit of rules and regulations to which they could be freed of. They've got these theological questions wrong. A little bit like what happened 564 years ago. They've got their focus on what they can do on their own strength instead of what the gospel can offer freely. But he, third thing that he does is that he speaks with a deep understanding of who and where they are. And I think one of the things that we as Christians, as church, do very good is being dismissive and trying not to understand where do the people that do not know God that needs his salvation come from. And I think if there is something that's that is stopping us to reach out to our friends, to their family, to our loved ones, is because we go with a very prejudgmental agenda. And we're already building this wall. And I'm not saying here that we should go and hold hands and compromise and all those things that the Bible tells us not to. But I think we come up into our assumptions and our, in our understanding much quicker that we, ought, that we don't need to. We, we come to our understanding faster. And again, I think it goes back to that culture that, come on, let's do it quick, because who's next? You know, it's the consumers. So I just wanted to bring that into our attention this morning, because Paul understands their true position. He says, he bears witness... But one thing that he doesn't do here is that he doesn't do any stereotyping. It's very clear. They've got a zeal. We all have got a zeal. We all have got a passion. And we've got it misplaced. I struggle with that sometimes. So no stereotyping. But also... One thing that is very clear here is that he, he manages to give, to come up with, with his research as if he has done his homework. So he doesn't give inadequate res, you know, research results to who they are and what they are on the basis of because somebody told me. He gives his, his input on his research because, first of all, he has been there, and secondly, he has not given up 
nor in the power of the gospel, and nor on his people. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this deep or this need for compassion? That we don't see people as statistical figures, but we see them as individuals, because that's how Christ sees them. What do we do when we proclaim the gospel and we want to involve that actually our attitude doesn't have these this remarks of superiority, but that we come to that place that actually we have been like you until the time that we met with Jesus. And therefore, we come out and we reach out to you. And what does our gospel involvement, the gospel present, um, proclamation involvement involve when actually we come up with assumptions without even spending time with people or praying about people? So we, I've said this again, I've said this in the past and I'll say it again, that I think it's very easy, we said it yesterday at the men's breakfast as well, it's very easy for us to sit back and spend a lot of time in theorizing of what this gospel proclamation and presentation, how we reach out, may mean for us as individuals. But I think there is a time element that we always underestimate. I always underestimate. And we know that time is taking away. And people are dying today without Jesus. And we've got a job. We've got a task. We've got a mandate. We've got an opportunity to go and reach them out. Perhaps you were expecting today a method of how we do that. And I think that method is what God puts in your heart. What God gives you that opportunity. Is that method is, you know, we cannot cut, copy, cut and paste, or copy, paste and cut, whatever, all those things, and say, because it has worked out in this way, it should always be this way. Because God is very creative in the way that he reaches out to people. But my challenge to you and to myself this morning is that in my proclamation of the gospel, whether through words, whether through deeds, whether through my life, whether through a big event, whether a small event, whether through a cup of coffee, whether through a phone call, I don't know. God puts it in your heart. Whether through a conversation or a birthday party, I don't know. But the question is, or the answer to the question is, what does the gospel proclamation involve? It involves me being ready to respond to God's compassion for the broken world. Because how they then, how then can they call 
on the one who they have not believed in. Verse 14 of chapter 10. And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone proclaiming to them, preaching to them? And how can they preach and proclaim unless they're sent? As is it written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Christ sends heralds. Heralds proclaim. People hear. The hearers believe. Believers call. And those who are called are saved. And that's the wonderful, powerful part of the beauty of the gospel story. And you and I have got the privilege to be part of this. What are you going to do about that? I'd like for us to pray together. And then we're going to take communion. And um, one of the things that we're going to do when we take communion is talk about God's righteousness. Because that's what he talks in chapter 10. So I want to give some space now for us to think of our involvement and what does it look like in the coming week. Maybe some of us are in holiday mode because it's half term. Um, some of us are working all week. But if that proclamation involves me, I don't want to do it on my own strength. So I just want to give some space for us to think and pray for situations that we're going to face this week that we can think, whoa, that's not by accident, Lord. And if I've not got compassion for that particular individual, would you please give it to me? Thank you, Father God, for the gospel. Thank you that you have created this wonderful powerful story of reaching out to your creation. And thank you, Lord, that you've saved us and you've made part of, our, of your gospel story. And my prayer, Lord, this morning is that you'd rescue me from creating another gospel story that is acceptable to people but doesn't match with what you have in mind and how you want to reach out. And for the people, Lord, that you have put in my mind and my heart and into our path, Lord, I pray that I don't lose sight, that actually you are the author of salvation. So help me not to give up. On you, on them, and on this wonderful power of the gospel.
As we go, Lord, into the week, I pray that uh, we have met with you today. And not only we have seen glimpses of your gospel, but we have met with you. And our hearts have been lifted by the power of the resurrection. And as we come, Lord, to your table, I pray, Lord Jesus, that once again we'll come to that place of worshipping you and thanking you, Lord, for your love, your compassion, your long-suffering for each and every one of us who has called to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to be sharing the bread and the wine together. And again... We are able to share this because the gospel has had the meaning in our lives. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. And I'm mindful of, again, the story where Jesus was with his disciples. And this was just on the night that he was betrayed. He was with his disciples because he wanted to give them a lesson for them to remember this wonderful story. This terrible story. Because of what he was about to do for them. I said to you earlier on that um, Romans chapter 10 talks about God's righteousness. And what Paul means by that is what, what he's been trying to do all his life. Trying to please God by acting piously, obeying rules, doing all these things. Until you come to the point when Jesus says, this is my body, broken for you. This cup is a sign of my blood shed for you. And God's righteousness is that whatever we, you and I, would have been punished before a just God, Jesus took it all on the cross. So when you take this bread and you remember Jesus by drinking of the wine, you're not alone because Jesus has died for all of us. The iniquity of us all fell on him. I know it's a very big church language that I'm using, but all our naughtiness, all our 
mistakes, Jesus says, I'll take care of them. And God's righteousness was given to Jesus instead of being given to you and me. And therefore we can say today, thank you. Therefore we can say today, this is good news and I cannot stop talking about it. So when we take these symbols, let's take them with gratitude in our hearts. and Let's take them with an attitude that actually we are proclaiming the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection until he returns. So thank you, Father God, for loving us so much. Thank you that not only you had compassion in your hearts for the crowds, but you showed what's the ultimate compassion is by you going on the cross, dealing with the mockery and the spit and, and the pain and the embarrassment and everything, Lord, that we would have done as well to you. And thank you, Lord, that in the midst of that, you went and you spoke to your father and you said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So, Father God, we come to you echoing Jesus' prayer. Forgive us, Lord, for those times that we don't know what we're doing. And we still want to come to you. We want to take this bread, Lord, and we want to take from this wine and remember you, remember the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and remember, Lord, that that power is within us. So restore our faith today, Lord, in you and in the power of your gospel as we share this together. In Jesus' name, amen.